Hello and welcome to Exploding Helicopter, the one and only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Our mission is to explore the single greatest movie trope of all time. So on each show, we take a look at a different film with the aim of eulogising or criticising the chopper fireball action. My name is Will, and in the absence of anyone else, I continue to be your host. Now, on this show, we're taking a look at one of the undisputed classics of the exploding helicopter genre, a film which very possibly kindled my love affair with helicopter explosions. So switch on your surveillance mics, select the whisper mode, and get ready to hit turbine boost. Yep, we're talking about 1983's Blue Thunder. To help me with that, I'm joined by a very special guest. He's never written for Exploding Helicopter. He doesn't even have his own film blog. In fact, he has no qualifications for this gig whatsoever. In fact, he's just another freaking observer. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks, Will. I like to title myself as a, as a filmic chancer, more than anything. <laughs> chancer being the operative word. This is the bit of the show where I sort of usually ask people if they've seen anything interesting recently, so I'm hoping you have. I have, yeah. Despite being the only film that I've seen in the last uh, few months, uh, thanks to two bouncing baby boys, it actually it stands up against a lot of the films that I've seen in the last few years. Um, really blew me away on a late-night cable TV watch, and it was the recent Jake Gyllenhaal film End of Watch with the LAPD. Yes, that's a kind of police sort of thriller film which uses, um, there's a lot of found footage, isn't it? That's the sort of the gimmick of that film. Yeah, the kind of visual gimmick is, as you say, they use the dashboard cameras, the body cameras, but it doesn't stick solely to that. It's interesting, it uses that as its kind of main visual language, but at the same time when that gets a little bit limiting, they take the liberty of just having a camera. So um, it's not like other films like Chronicle, if you've seen Chronicle, which is all limited to the actual cameras in the, in the story. Um, this one kind of uses that as, as a bit of a motif, but then steps outside of it when it needs to. But it does definitely work and draw you into the day-to-day lives of the cops on the beat in, in downtown LA. I'm not too familiar with that world. I'm pretty sure that you're not too familiar with it either. But it, it does serve the film very well. I mean, it's a very strong cast, strong story. It's a pretty brutal film, and then when you add in that kind of slightly more realistic visual language, it really does have a, a lot of impact. Okay, thanks, Bob. I think it's time to get stuck into Blue Thunder. So here's that trailer man guy with the main plot points. Roy Scheider is Frank Murphy, a lone wolf. Freeze! Bozo, how many regulars come in the front door with a key? Who's about to become... A guinea pig. I thought it was illegal to arm police helicopters. Well, that would depend on the circumstances, wouldn't it? Columbia Pictures presents Blue Thunder. A flying arsenal that hears through walls, sees in the dark, and thinks your thoughts. Wherever you look, the guns follow. It was designed for war-torn countries. One civilian dead for every ten terrorists. That's an acceptable ratio, unless you're one of the civilians. It was assigned to American cities. You're talking about ground control from the air? That's what this special detail is all about. They told Murphy to test it. They didn't tell him what it was for. Because of these coppers and you could run the whole damn country. Who was behind it? Where are we? Federal building. Really? Hey, you want to find out what's going on in there? Certainly do. Hey, you gotta do me a favor. I want you to pick up a package for me. Why they chose him? Uh, he's totally unsuitable for our purpose. Don't stop for anything or anybody. For why they changed their minds. Turn the face over, girl.
So Blue Thunder came out in 1983. It was directed by John Badham, who also did Saturday Night Fever and War Games. It stars Roy Scheider as the time-honoured maverick cop on the edge who plays by his own rules. He's a helicopter pilot with the Los Angeles Police Force, and he's seconded to a secret project to test a state-of-the-art police helicopter that's been dubbed Blue Thunder. Controversially, the Super Chopper has been equipped with powerful machine guns. Supposedly it's to be used as part of the security for the upcoming Olympic Games, but it seems that there might be a more sinister agenda at work. Meanwhile, a prominent local politician has been killed in mysterious circumstances. Could the two events possibly be linked? Uh, adding a little extra spice to proceedings, the Blue Thunder project is being run by the Machiavellian Malcolm McDowell, and it turns out that Scheider and McDowell served together in Vietnam, and that there's some bad blood between them. And over the course of the film, we slowly learn what the cause of their enmity is. Bob, what's your history with Blue Thunder, and uh, what did you make of watching it again this time? Well, my history is, I mean, being the age that I am, which I won't disclose right now, but um, I spent a lot of the early to mid-80s staying up later than I should have been allowed to be um, watching these kinds of films. And it just stuck out for me as a, being a real classic of the genre. It's like that shape of that helicopter. It's so kind of iconographic and it seems to sum up a lot of what great 80s films are about. You know, it's kind of um, conspiracy theories, cityscapes, powerful technology, gadgets and gizmos and kind of renegade cops on the edge as you alluded to earlier so yeah i just i just remember the shape of the helicopter more than anything it's, you know it's, it sticks in the mind what i found looking back over the film recently was that it's actually more of a kind of grown-up and sensible film than i remembered i was mixing it in with the kind of 80s super vehicle subgenre of airwolf and street hawk and all the rest of them you know knight rider being a tv classic but yeah just on reviewing it it wasn't quite as uh, wacky as some of those it was a little bit more of a grown-up thriller which was a surprise to me but i enjoyed it i really enjoyed watching it again well i think we've both got a similar sort of history with this film because this was a film that i watched um, as a kid had it on uh, been taped off tv and um, i watched it um, over and over and uh, again i'm not really quite sure kind of really actually what appealed to me about it so much i think i definitely found all of the sort of helicopter um, sequences really exciting and i think probably as a kid it felt like it was one of the sort of few films that i had which probably felt like a grown-up film so i think i perhaps latched onto it that because it felt like i was seeing something that perhaps i i shouldn't uh, i shouldn't see but you talk about the plot and the fact that um, it's more of a kind of sort of serious sort of conspiracy thriller um but i from this rewatch most recently and knowing that I was going to review this film was looking at it much more closely and I felt that actually the conspiracy plot made less sense to me this time round than it had previously and you know for those that haven't watched it broadly the aim of the villains here seems to be to sort of introduce this armed helicopter into the police force via the back door but it was never really clear to me what they hoped to gain from that. I mean, I don't know. Was I missing something uh, particularly? No, I don't, I don't think there are any great adepts that you're missing out on there. It's pretty thin. It's a pretty classic conspiracy plot. And the kind of the, the structure of the film is, you know, you've got your intro to Shida. He's on the edge. He's, he's got the shakes. He's got his Vietnam flashbacks, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. And then you get, you know, this wonderful display of what um, Blue Thunder can do in a great scene about collateral damage in kind of civilian areas. But then this 
conspiracy theory is is pretty much given away in one two minute scene and it's so clunky it's like you've got all the main perpetrators in a room together going well it's lucky no one knows that we're behind all of this nefarious conspiracy then isn't it and i really hope nobody finds out about it and they'll pat each other on the back or meanwhile you know the uh, roy scheider is taping it all and that's pretty much it then you've got your mcguffin as hitchcock call it you've got your tape that um will bust open the conspiracy and the rest of the film is pretty much let's fly over la let's do some really great aerial photography Let's blow some stuff up, all for the sake of this tape, and hopefully you'll get in the right hands and go out to the media and save the day. And that's, you know, the conspiracy theory is pretty much Hitchcock's MacGuffin for the whole film. I would agree with that, because there is a little bit on the conspiracy right at the beginning of the film where you see this councilwoman. The idea is that she's got some important documents. We see her being attacked and killed. And then, the really, the conspiracy plot, stops because then the driving force of the film is this rivalry between Roy Scheider and Malcolm McDowell and then as you say right at the end of the film there is that scene where he's uh, listening in and recording this conversation between the main conspirators and that's suddenly the conspiracy plot is back in and the the, the intervening sort of you know 80 minutes have all really been driven by this rivalry between uh, Malcolm McDowell and uh, Roy Scheider. Yes yeah, it's, it's classic Malcolm McDowell <laughs> if you ever want to know what Malcolm McDowell's range is or lack of range, then just watch <laughs> this film. He kind of has, I think in the same way Roger Moore had degrees of eyebrow, he has degrees of sneer. It's kind of, yeah, that's pretty much him all over. Um, yeah, I think um, if Roger Moore was known for his raised eyebrow, I think a curled lip is probably Malcolm McDowell's signature um, acting acting touch. And he's he is in imperious form here. He's... Uh, Drool, he draws out his uh, English accent in uh, in a particularly uh, enjoyable way in this film. There's some very uh, good lines that he has. Or it's really his delivery of the lines where I think uh, Roy Scheider's been shot down. Or not been shot down, he's crashed in his helicopter. And uh, there's no love lost between him and Malcolm McDowell. So Malcolm McDowell very lazily calls in to headquarters to say oh, that they're going to need a rescue party for, for Scheider's helicopter. And he just says... Oh, they're somewhere in the Watts area. And that's as much information as uh, anyone gets. Absolutely. And and that kind of um, venom that he brings to the role that, that the Americans seem to think that all the British people have for anyone that they think's below them is it, it doesn't even need to justify, like when you mentioned that one. What was Mal- Malcolm McDowell? How did they get him out of private school and into a serving Vietnam helicopter unit? What was he doing there? There's no reason to explain it because he's just the perfect foil in this walking 80s coiffured leather jacketed sneer that, you know, drives around in a Pontiac. He's just, yeah, really distasteful character. Great villain. But the relationship that he has with Roy Scheider is really probably the thing that I enjoyed during the film the most. And I think Roy Scheider actually is a really good foil for Malcolm McDowell because there's a sort of running, um, there's obviously clearly some serious bad blood between them. But Roy Scheider is also, um, he does also does impressions of Malcolm McDowell at various points in the film. So that, that, um, you know, it kind of, it's a real sort of, it's a really good, enjoyable sparring between those, those two actors. And as good as Malcolm McDowell is, I think Roy Scheider's, He's he's his equal and kind of um, you know it really, it really feels that I think that's the most fun part of the film. Yeah, it does boil down to a bit of schoolboy rivalry, doesn't it? Particularly when they're kind of racing each other in their helicopters, and 
Malcolm McDowell, your classic school bully, has undone a sort of special nut in the engine of Roy Scheider's helicopter and, you know, pushes him to the limit and forces him to a crash landing in a civilian area. It's just, yeah, it's schoolboy rivalry, but it's done in a very good very good way with Scheider, like you say, sending up McDowell. We've already mentioned it already, but both of these characters um, served together sort of in, in Vietnam. Roy Scheider, perhaps more understandably, being American, slightly more tricky to understand quite what Malcolm McDowell was doing there, as he's so clearly upper-crust Brit. But, uh, not revealing a rage again, Bob, but as somebody who probably watched a lot of... Uh, kind of cop or action films in the 80s I thought you were going to say as someone who served in Vietnam but yeah yeah no I, I've definitely um, watched enough of that material but uh, having characters uh, traumatized by their Vietnam experience and kind of having some sort having that trauma shown on the screen in some sort of grainy flashback was a real sort of staple of 80s thrillers and we get that very enjoyably in this film where uh, we kind of see a kind of recur where Scheider has a kind of recurring nightmare in, involving Vietnam. But um, I think we're going to absolutely right. I think every cop on the edge had their own version of the Vietnam flashback. Even even kind of seep down into Saturday afternoon television. The whole point of the A team is that they're, they're Vietnam vets on the run. You know, they've all got that that kind of um, tortured past, and it's you know it solved the generation. But it's just really easy shorthand to to show a troubled character that and the. The trembling hands and Roy Roy Scheider has the classic scene of moaning in his sleep and kind of tossing and turning while we cut into cut with the 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 terrible act that was um that was taking place in Vietnam that's the cause of all of his anguish. You know, it's the classic Nam flashback scene. Well, I think we're going to get into spoilers here because um, otherwise we'll have a very difficult conversation about this film. But about this kind of flashback and this trauma, I watched that and I just thought, was that really such a traumatic event? I mean, I'm not saying it's Well, you're pleasant. obviously battle-hardened, Will. <laughs> You've seen too much action. You've lost your soul. Too many of these films have got into your pores. But no, I agree. In the, in the kind of, in the, the theatre of battle, well, let, let's say what it is. They, yeah. they have a, they have a, well, they have a kind of, um, a VC in their, in their, um, company and on the edge of the helicopter. They're dangling him off. Roy Scheider is portrayed as the kind of, unwitting pilot of this scenario and it's later revealed that Malcolm McDowell is the one with his hands around him and um he takes he takes a fall he certainly does not Malcolm McDowell the uh, the unfortunate uh, Viet Cong soldier indeed uh, yeah yeah he he he's thrown from the helicopter with the really um, almost operatic slow elongated scream all the way down i mean i'm laughing about it it makes me sound callous but when you see it in the context it's really uh, yeah, it's really ramped up. I think they stretch that kind of Wilhelm mm. scream out for a, a good minute and a half. But really, in the in the scale of horrors of war, it, this did seem to sort of, for me, rank quite quite low down. Of all the things Roy Scheider may or may not have seen in Vietnam, to to sort of still ten years later be tortured by this one event seemed, I don't know, a little bit strange, but. Yeah, I think, yeah, to show him as a bit of a broken man as a result of that is a bit far-fetched. But I think it's a nice setup for the, the Malcolm McDowell rivalry. And then there's the, the kind of reveal that you get in the last third of the film that it was actually McDowell that had, had the guy in his hands and that threw him off. I think that, that works quite well. And it really, if you didn't, if you had any kind of soft spot for McDowell, and that's certainly, um, dispelled when, when you see him do that. Yes. And there's a kind of recurring, um, 
taunt that Malcolm McDowell has for Roy Scheider throughout the film, which as they, as the history between them is revealed, you then understand the meaning of that particular uh, one-liner, and I think that's a nice payoff um, in the film. So whatever the problems with the plot, this film is packed with helicopter action. What did you make of all of the rotor-bladed action on display here? Well, that's exactly what the film is all about. And, you know, on the cover, they're not going to have a picture of uh, of Malcolm McDowell and Roy Shiley. They're going to have a picture of this futuristic kind of boxy-looking, minigun-nosed chopper from hell. I mean, it's amazing. It's fantastic. The, The machine looks great. The aerial photography is, you know, going back and looking over it again, I was really impressed. Some of the best I've seen. And you've got to remind yourself that a lot of this footage is original, real piloted footage. It's not back projection or there's not too many miniatures in it. So they really are flying helicopters over a populated city and doing some pretty daring manoeuvres. I think it's fantastic. It really, yeah, it's the it's the beating heart of the film and, and the, the aerial photography, the different helicopters fighting each other, the crash landings on building sites, really good stuff. I would agree. I think the aerial photography in this film really sort of holds up and it was photographed by John Alonso, who I think he did, um, the, I think he did Chinatown. He's basically, he's got a very, he's got some really good films on his CV. So he's a real kind of classy act. And I think you can see that in, um, the, you know, the fact that this film, that, or that photography of the aerial stuff really holds up sort of 30 years later. And as you say, there's the fantastic sequence where they're kind of flying through the, I don't know what you call them, those kind of, in LA, the waterwork type or whatever. The, 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 the flood, the flood channels the, the flood channels, flood channels. yeah there's they're a really exciting sort of sequence as they're dodging in and out of bridges there and then then the kind of final helicopter duel between malcolm mcdowell and roy scheider in amongst the skyscrapers of la is is really fantastic bit of kind of aerial cat and mouse absolutely and like you mentioned the cinematographer there's some beautiful i mean it's a bit of a pastiche now but it really is beautiful kind of dusk photography of la Going into night, you've got the kind of purple, bruising sky, the the lights of LA underneath you. I mean, it's classic Miami Vice stuff. It's classic of the 80s era. It's kind of Scarface, but it does look beautiful. It's very evocative, really good cinematography. And you mentioned the director as well. I mean, you've got some, like, if the cinematographer made Chinatown and the director made Saturday Night Fever, you know, it's not a lightweight team. The director has made some pretty, I would say, kind of, um, decade defining films like Saturday Night Fever's classic 70s film he made um, favorite of mine Short Circuit which I would say is a classic definitive 80s film in in, in a way that maybe um, uh, Blue Thunder is a little bit more adult than that but yeah I mean it's a really really strong team and you can see that in the quality so we talked a little bit about Roy Scheider and Malcolm McDowell, but also the cast, the rest of the cast of this film is actually quite interesting as well. So you've got a very young Daniel Stern as Roy Scheider's sidekick, and then you've got uh, a real favourite of Sam Peckinpah, Warren Oates, as the uh, classic shouting, yelling uh, police boss as well. Absolutely, um, in his last appearance, I, I understand. It was his last uh, screen appearance, which was, uh, and there's a dedication to him uh, at the uh, at the end of the film. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a well-known trope, but as a shouting chief, he's pretty good. Although he does have um, he does have one very strange line that he um, I don't know if you remember it. There's one where he's he sort of is saying that we've uh, he basically says we've woken up with uh, two with a uh, mince pie under each arm, and I really. <laughs> 
with a hot mince pie under each arm. And I really don't understand what he maybe, was... <laughs> maybe that's our numb talk or something. I don't know what that means. <laughs> maybe it only makes sense if you're in the police force or something. But, uh, yeah, I've never had a hot mince pie. Yeah, no idea. Under each armpit. Um, yeah. And I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to make of that. It's, but, uh, yeah, police code. But such is Warren Oates' great acting ability that he manages to uh, he manages to sell that uh, he sell that line. So you mentioned the sidekick Lyman Good, who um, I recognised as being the goofy-looking guy from City Slickers, amongst other things. He also has a kind of funny role um, as someone peeling scabs off his face in Something About Mary. If you don't know the name, you'll definitely know his face. But it's good to see kind of where he originates from. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with um, sort of small bit part actors, but I'm sure film fans will have noticed that there's a small role for the great pockmarked villain Anthony James in this film as uh, kind of uh, he he uh, gets to uh, run over uh, our friend uh, Lyman Good in, in one particular scene. I don't know. Did you uh, did you spot him amongst the cast, Bob? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you've ever found there are certain actors, they take a role somewhere. Once you've seen it, it, seen them in that role, you can't unsee them. And he was in, I believe, Naked Gun. He was the killer in the shower that is fighting Leslie Nielsen and gets kind of beat off by being having a towel thrown in his face and an electric toothbrush pushed in his mouth. And just from then on, I can't take him seriously. He looks great as a villain. He's brilliant. He looks kind of, you know like some kind of Victorian caricature of a, of a villain. But, you know, once I've seen him in that role, I can't ever take him seriously. And there's all kinds of logic holes in this film if you wanted to look into it. Like, why would someone who's staking out a, a high-ranking police chief in the attempt of bumping her off in a, an abandoned car with no plates that's easily spotted by any <laughs> passing helicopter patrol? It's not the most sensible kind of uh, stakeout he's ever made. But, yeah, no, he's got a great face for a villain. Yeah, well, talking of uh, plot holes, the one that occurred to me, well, there are many in this film, but the one that um, stood out to me on this rewatch was um, why does Roy Scheider phone his kind of estranged partner to go and collect the videotape from the dumpster? Roy Scheider at that moment, he's just in a helicopter. He could probably fly there in two minutes and get the tape and then fly it without any problem to the media station that he wants to kind of like leak the tape out to so i mean that yeah, just... you'd shorten the running time by about 15 minutes though wouldn't you well let's face it there's no real reason at all it's quite funny i was looking uh looked up the film of course before doing the recording on imdb and like you say uh, there's a really nice kind of um girlfriend character and she's she does a great job with a very slim role she's very likable and they've got great chemistry you really think that they've got something there and that they kind of they need you want them to kind of get back together but then she turns into this kind of um night rider driving kind of dumpster smashing expert stunt driver to speed across la and get the tape to this news broadcasting station and in one of the deleted scenes they had her go through um there's a there's a a bit where roy says take a left and she takes a right by accident because after all she is a woman as we know, in the 80s, that's kind of what they did. And uh, there's a deleted scene where she was supposed to come up to the narrow alley and go up onto two wheels and drive through it. So, like, completely inexplicable stunt driving skills from this woman. But, I, yeah, I, I could forgive it for that plot point. Well, the thing that I thought, particularly watching her sort of character in this film, was that she's actually... We talked about how Roy Scheider is a maverick cop on the edge. His wife is possibly more more of a maverick than he is. Absolutely, absolutely. And maybe that's why it didn't work out. 
So we've spoken about how this film is sort of jam-packed with uh, action, but um, there is actually some uh, interesting aspect to the action in this film because uh, sort of before we uh, started recording this podcast, uh, Bob and I were sort of talking about that, and uh, I think we both came to the same view that the some a lot of the action in this film is A Team esque. Do you want to explain what you mean by that, Bob? Yeah, um, I think it's a weird kind of moral situation that some films get get in when. The hero is kind of um, cast doubt upon and has to go outside of the, the channels of authority. And then obviously, if he's a cop on the edge, he's shown as being a bad cop and he has to prove himself good. So then you've got good cops chasing our hero and he can't turn around and shoot them all because then obviously he loses his moral high ground. So then how do you get someone like Roy Scheider, who's a cop on the edge, who's gone too far, who's stolen this prototype helicopter, how do you get him so that he can escape from these people without harming them and losing his moral high ground. And early on, like you mentioned, you get those whole A-team-esque moments where he'll shoot down a helicopter, it'll plummet out of the sky, it'll smash to smithereens on a concrete floor, and then two people will get out coughing and spluttering. <laughs> and completely fine with all limbs attached. Um, and that's fine for the 80s. But then they kind of they start off that way, maintaining Roy as this kind of you know white knight. But then they kind of get a little bit bored of that because then it goes into later sequences where he just starts blowing up buildings and stuff that have clearly got office workers in, but you don't really see any effect of that. I think they, they try and justify it by having a scene, very short scene, where they show police people evacuating people from a shopping centre or kind of like an office complex. And then I think from that we're supposed to take that it's empty, but there's no way that whole place is empty. And he just rips through it with his minigun, missing um, Malcolm McDowell, tearing up the background of L.A. So I think, yeah, they get a bit bored of the moral high ground. Yeah, and there's a particularly contrived moment when two F-16s uh, are called in to shoot uh, Scheider out of the sky and they fire their rockets, um, which are heat-seeking. So Scheider parks in front of a barbecue shack and inexplicably we see everybody inside the barbecue shack decide to run out. Now there's no no reason why they should other than the fact that you know it would be inconvenient to um, Scheider's moral position if he just basically sacrificed the entire workers and uh, customers of a barbecue shack just so that he could stay alive and there's another scene where he kind of shoots a police car in half and we can see clearly see that the policeman in the front of the vehicle are unharmed so yeah they're practically scratching their heads going oh it's just <laughs> terrible but the the barbecue shack one i mean there are these little moments of comedy and i looked up on the um the background information and they um the, there's a the, they explode the barbecue shack and then there's a shot of the street with police cars chasing and they get rained on by thousands of barbecue chickens falling out of the sky which is a brilliant comedy moment Apparently they, they dropped, they had a vat of real chickens because they were cheaper than buying rubber chickens. So that, they were all real barbecue chickens they dropped from a crane over the street scene. And as it was filmed in one of the uh, less well-heeled areas of um, LA, all the local homeless community then descended on this scene <laughs> grabbing these chickens and there was a bit of a food fight afterwards. So yeah, it's not without its moments of comedy. And you mentioned the uh, the the fighter jets. I think when you've got something like the fighter jets that are so poorly done, the back projection on the pilots in that is is terrible. When you haven't seen anything like that in the rest of the film, the models of them aren't really that detailed, and there's a terrible kind of 
POV shot of the heat-seeking missiles where you just see the tip of the missile in front of the camera and it's waved around the city like the, the start of Police Squad or something. It only it just goes to show how good the other stuff is. You know, when you see a terrible bit of back projection and modelling, then you really know when all the real stuff is happening. And there's no, even in this day of kind of CGI, there's no there's no substitute for getting people out in real situations and throwing them around a bit and, and getting real photography and really... It highlights how good the rest of the film is. Thanks, Bob. We're going to take a short break to hear from another LAM Podcasting Network show. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about some classic exploding helicopter action. Listen to The Lair of the Unwanted on iTunes. And you can hear me, Jason Soto, use the F word. French? No. Fudge? Eh, sort of, but no. Frank? No. Fridge? No. Faruka Balk? What? No. Farfid Nugan. Jeez, no. All right, what F word could you possibly be talking about? I'm talking about in the layer of the unwanted, covering the movies you don't want to see and more on iTunes. Welcome back. So this is the part of the show where we look at the exploding helicopter action and there's some really juicy chopper fireballs for us to sink our teeth into. Both of the helicopter explosions happen during the film's climax. Scheider and McDowell engage in an aerial duel between the skyscrapers of Los Angeles. Unable to shake McDowell off his tail, Scheider performs a vertical 360-degree loop-the-loop, allowing him to come up behind McDowell and blast him out of the sky using his chopper's machine gun. The second helicopter explosion happens a short time later, uh, where we see Scheider decide to blow up Blue Thunder in an effort to prevent the aerial power of the prototype being used for ill. He then lands the chopper in front of an oncoming freight train, which ploughs into the helicopter, destroying the whirly bird. Bob, what did you make of the uh, chopper fireball action here? I thought it was pretty scant for a for a dog fighting helicopter film. Only two, like you mentioned. The first one is it's not a massive fireball; it's like a little puff of flame, more than anything. Uh, and it comes after that classic eighteen moment of people climbing out and getting to a safe distance that we mentioned earlier. You know, plaudits to them. They did it real size, I believe. You can see that there's a there's a bridge going over where the chopper has landed, and there are real people and cars going over it. So they didn't go for a miniature or anything. So they they shot it real size, and yeah, there's a good there's a good bit of uh, flame off that. What did you think? I would agree. It's not the most exciting exploding helicopter I've ever seen. Um, I think I enjoy the in the sequence in its entirety probably more. So it comes at the end of this great kind of aerial dogfight between the two of them. And as it's been kind of talked up at several points in the film is Scheider is reputed to have once looped a helicopter, which is, uh, uh, as we know, aerodynamically impossible. But anyway, he that's in his backstory. And, and sure enough, it comes out at the end of the film just when he needs it. So he uh, loops Blue Thunder and that gives him the advantage to shoot McDowell. So I think, I think taken with, taken as the kind of the end of that sequence, I really enjoy that chop fireball, but I, I would agree with you. It did feel a little bit, it was a, given that it's, you're shooting down the main villain, it did feel like that it could have been a bit bigger. It could have, they could have played that out just a little bit more. But the, uh, the final fireball is spectacular. That's your, you've waited an hour and a half for some, some kerosene to hit the night sky and it certainly does there really great fireball and i mentioned to you before recording i thought in my um kind of naivety of the exploding helicopter sub 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 genre 
that um you know is it a first where it's the actual pilot that's blown up the the helicopter in question and you you called that into question you, you knew another example yes so we have seen a, another example of that uh, in uh, the film the expendables 3 Sylvester Stallone kind of blows up a helicopter that he's just been piloting himself so it's not the only kind of occasion where um, a pilot has kind of destroyed his own uh, helicopter deliberately but it's probably the earliest example um, I've seen of uh, kind of a helicopter suicide I guess you'd you'd call it. There's a couple of notable things about the explosion and as we all know from the internet mem real men don't look at explosions and Roy Scheider certainly does not have time to look at this explosion as he swaggers away with it at his back in slow motion. Yeah, it's a classic. Um, but the other thing is that it's that it's got that really funny filmic device where if something that has a petrol tank gets nudged, it goes up into an almighty mother load of flame. And all right, it's a freight train that's hitting it, but it barely touches it before it's just atom bombed itself off the tracks. So yeah, it does have a slightly preposterous kind of angle to it but it's a really great fireball it really is i mean it absolutely fills the screen the flames are fantastic we also the way the film is the the way that sequence is shot means that um, we get to see repeated um, angles of the helicopter explode it's also in slow motion as well so we're we're we're, we get to enjoy it again and again and again we don't even need to hit rewind the director just keeps giving us the same explosion from a different angle and in glorious slow motion so it's a really thoroughly enjoyable chop fireball there was a little moment of detail i don't know if you you spotted it as well but this if as it's exploding the the blades the rotor blades continue to rotate and then one of it uh one of the rotor blades hits the kind of the the front of the freight train and that seems that appears to trigger yet another explosion well as we all know there's a lot of fuel in those rotor blades (laughs) there is there is and um, i don't know whether that was just um a fluke or whether that was deliberate but it just is uh it's just a sort of a fantastic little extra detail that really made me um, enjoy that sequence and a rare example of a helicopter being destroyed um, by a train we have seen that we have seen that before there's a German martial arts film called Lasco Death Train, where we uh, where we see a, a train destroy a helicopter. So uh, very unusual, though. And the satisfying thing is, it doesn't even bother showing Roy being accepted back in the cop community or getting back together with his girlfriend or or having any kind of a happy ending. We just end on the fireball. So it's as if like that's enough. That's that's what you're here for. Don't mm. worry about the character. We've blown up Blue Thunder. You know he saved the day, but, you know, the payoff is the fireball. And I, I'm very satisfied with that. OK, well, I think that just about wraps things up. Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. As always, we'd love it if you checked out the Exploding Helicopter website, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're in all those good places. We'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.